in our Pasha share week ago, week and a half ago, we discussed the concept of Arvus, of guaranteeing things. And recently also I was doing some work on the halachic, the halachic topic of malpractice, of the liability that professionals have <clears throat> for not doing their job the way they're supposed to. I want to discuss tonight two chuvas that are at the intersection of these topics, both malpractice and the idea of arvus, of guaranteeing things. Arvus is connected to these parshias. In last week's parasha, Yehuda says, Yehuda says uh, that Anochi Arvenu Miyadi Tibakshenu, he tells Yaakov that he will guarantee the safety of Binyamin. Gemara Mbavatra says that's one of the sources for the halachic, for the halachic idea of guaranteeing something, of accepting liability for someone else's loss. And in, in this week's parasha, he says, Ki he tells Yosef that I guaranteed him, that's why I, I'm on the hook here, I have to make sure that he gets returned to Yaakov properly. And malpractice, malpractice is a discussion in the Gemara in Babakama, Daf Tadites, Daf Kuf. The Gemara talks about a Tabach, Uman Shekilkel, a Shochet, who makes some kind of error and causes the behema to be treif, to be Osir Bachila. The Gemara talks about Maradiner Lashulchani, someone who, who gives a, a dinar, a suspect dinar, a coin, shows it to an expert money changer, a banker, for his opinion on whether it's a good coin, he should accept it as payment or not, and he gets bad advice, he's told that it's good, he accepts it, and then turns out it's bad, he no longer has recourse to go back to the guy who gave it to him, that, that guy skipped town after passing the, the, the bad money. So the, the Gemara has a lengthy and detailed discussion of malpractice. We're going to discuss tonight two chuvas on the subject of more or less what we would call malpractice, both from about one century ago. One is the Dibber Malkiel, Ramalkiel Ten, Tenenbaum of Poland, one of the great postkim of a century ago. The other from the Chavatel Sasharon, Rabbi Shua Menachem Manis Babad, also a noted postkim from about a century ago, World War I era, post-World War I. First chuva in the Dibber Malkiel is about the following case. It is a very simple case to understand. It's about insurance. We discussed insurance previously in reading response. I pointed out, even though insurance is not always a topic that makes people thrill with excitement, nevertheless, insurance turns out to be a fairly interesting topic from a halakhic standpoint. It's a good background against which to discuss various interesting halakhic issues. The Chuvan the Divan Malkiel is as follows. Fairly simple case. Someone paid money to an insurance agent, paid a premium, in order to to insure his home, for he wanted to insure it against fire. Simcha asked me whether insurance is typically spell out the specific damage you're insuring against or their general policies. I told him insurance policies, they come with pages and pages of paperwork and they, they, they delineate exactly what your coverages are and what, what they cover you for and for how much. In this case, he was buying fire insurance for his home, whether it was part of a larger package of of, uh, of, of, da- of, of damage insurance in general or not, I don't know. But for our purposes, he was buying fire insurance for his home. The person he was buying it from, Obviously, insurance companies are not mom-and-pop uh, people who insure out of their basements. Obviously, there are large companies who, sell, who, who are the underwriters who insure the property. The person he bought it from was an agent, an agent of the company. Now... The company itself were, was presumably non-Jewish. They were not following Dintara. The Dintara is going to be between the customer and the agent, who are both Jewish, apparently. So the customer paid, paid for the policy. He actually paid for only part of the policy. He only paid part of the premium. The agent told him that it's okay. He, he can extend him credit. He can, uh, he, 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 can, he can get him the policy anyway. That's fine. Now, the agent forgot to... He, he took the money, he forgot to enter it into the books of the company, the, according to the law, according to the regulations. He, he forgot to formally register the policy as having been issued and paid for. Now, you can see where this is going, I'm sure, that the house burned down, and the company will not honor the policy. They say, the company says, it was not entered into the books. So whatever he, whatever he may have given you or not given you, whatever you may have discussed, if the policy is not formally recorded, 
in our books. We are not obligated to honor it, and therefore the company will not pay the policy. Now again, the company, whether the company would be mechuyiv to al Torah or not, probably not, even al Torah, but anyway, they're not Jewish, presumably, so they're not part of this dintar. The dintar is between the customer and the agent. The customer says, you caused me this terrible loss. I lost my house, and had you done your job, I would have this insurance policy, I would get a lot of money from the company, and now I'm not getting anything. And therefore, he, he, was, he, he sued in Bastin, he sued the, the agent for his negligence in causing him this terrible loss. So Jim Rokiel goes back and forth throughout this tshuva. He goes back and forth and back and forth. At the end of the tshuva, the end of the tshuva he comes out that he's putter. The agent is putter. But how he gets there, he has a number of twists and turns along the way. So, first step, Jim Rokiel says, first of all, what happened was the agent apparently forgot. He simply was neglectful. He forgot to enter the, to register the policy. Is that considered pshia, negligence, or not? This is a, we've discussed this in the past, this is a uh, very important question halacha. It spans various different, numerous different areas in, in, in halacha, not just Choshen Mishpat, Arachayim, Yeridea. The different Lokiel throws out a few of the contexts in which poskim debate whether, whether debate whether forgetting something is considered negligence or to err is human. It's just considered, you know, it's unfortunate, but people, make, people forget things sometimes. So the different Malkiel goes, goes back and forth on that. He, he, he doesn't really discuss it much. He just makes various references to some of the literature on the topic. One of them in Arachayim is a discussion about Tfilas Tashlumen. The halacha is, if a person is unable to daven, then he davens Tashlumen. The next Tfilah, he davens twice. If he's unable to daven Shachris, he's busy the whole morning on something of great importance, he can daven two Menchas. That's only, however, if you were an Onis, if you were unable to daven. If you simply were too lazy to daven, you had better things to do, that you'd rather uh, read a book, and then you didn't daven chakras, you cannot daven mincha twice. You forfeit the ability to daven chakras. So the Shulchan Aruch brings a case. Let's say a person, let's say a person was, a person didn't daven chakras early in the morning because he thought he still had, he thought he'd have more time later in the morning to daven. And then later in the morning, something happened and he wasn't able to daven, or he forgot. So the Magen Avram said, so the Shulchan Aruch says, you, that's considered an onus, and the Magen Avram says, shikha mikri onus. Initially, you were not considered irresponsible because you had the right to assume that you would daven later. You don't have to daven Vasikin every day. People daven 7 o'clock, 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock. That is legitimate. A person is not considered to be a posheya for waiting till 8 o'clock to daven chakras. And later, if he forgets to daven chakras, at that point, he's an onus. So if he forgot to daven chakras, the Magen Avram says he's an onus, and he has the right to do tashlumen. So that's one place where we say that shikha is an onus. Another place different Malkiel refers to is Yeridea. Yeridea is Hilchas Nedarim. It talks about it talks about a person who made a talks about a person who made a neder, and the and, and, and the Ramah. The Ramah talks about a case where the 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 the, the Ramah talks about a case where, where a person made where, where a person made a neder. And Shulchan Aruch talks about a case that a person promised to do something by a certain time. Again, similar to the case in Arachayim, he says, oh, I'll fulfill my neder tomorrow, I have a week to do it. And then later he was either nenas or shachach, or later he forgot. Yesh armen to mikri onus. Some posts can say that's called an onus. Again, same idea, because you have the right to not do your neder at the first, at the first opportunity, assuming you'll do it later. Later, if you were shachach, if you forgot, you're an onus. And so in these places we consider shachach an onus. There are other places where we consider shikha a poshaya. So, for example, in Choshen Mishpat and Reish Tadi Aleph, if a shomer does not remember where he put the object, he says, I know I put it somewhere, I, I just can't, can't remember where, I hid it somewhere very secure. It's so secure I can't even locate it myself. Forgetting is, is, is considered poshaya. Kolo yadana pshiyusihi, the Gemara says. So there are various contradictions in the poskim, various, um, various disputes in the poskim as to whether shikha, forgetting to do something, is considered particularly in a Choshen Mishpat context, is considered an ones or a poshea. It, it, it sounds a little strange. People intuitively think, well, you forgot, I mean, you're irresponsible, you, you, make, you should make sure you remember. But Halacha actually is, uh, is somewhat ambivalent about this. And this week's parsha, last week's parsha, I, I, like I, like I like to relate the, the explanation of the Akedas Yitzchak. It says, Yosef, after he, 
uh, two weeks parashar ago, it says that Yosef, after he, after he uh, resolved, the, interpreted the dream of the Saramashkim, he told him, you're going to get out, you're going to find favor with Paro, please remember me and plead my case to Paro, remind Paro about me. Then it says, the Saramashkim did not remember Yosef and he forgot him. Uh, repetitive language. He did not remember him and he forgot him. So the Sefer Akedis Yitzchak has a detailed explanation of the, the, of the verses there. He, he has an intricate explanation of how to read the various psukim, but he explains that, w- that when Yosef uh, asked the Saramashkim, he meant, I understand you might forget. To prepare is human. What I want you to do is, I want you to tie a knot around your, fin- your, your finger to remind you, make a note, do something, set an alarm on your phone to remind you to, to, to mention me to Paro. Means, of course the Saramashkim wouldn't have been responsible, wouldn't have been at fault had he forgotten. But the Saramashkim was so, didn't, just simply didn't care. He was so ungrateful to Yosef, he didn't even bother setting an alarm on his phone. He didn't even bother tying a string around his finger. He just didn't care. So he didn't remember, he didn't try to remember. He didn't take steps to make sure he remembered. Therefore, it's no wonder that he forgot later. Anyway, that's what that Kedis Yitzchak says about the Parsha in, uh, in Parsha's Vayeshev. Yes? Well, I was going to say the same thing either. Why did it say double language? Simcha was going to say the same explanation. But anyway, so Allah is somewhat ambivalent about this question about whether if a person forgets whether he's considered a Poshe or not. Dibram Malkiel says, so even though that's what happened here, the agent forgot to register the policy, he says, let's even say, let, let, let's even say that, that Shikha is a Pshia. Let's, just, let's say we assume for, for arguendo that forgetting is considered negligence. Mm-hmm. And let's even say he did a pamezid. Let's say he simply decided he wasn't interested. He was just, uh, he, he wasn't interested in working. He wasn't interested in, taking, in, in, in making the effort to register the policy. He simply deliberately failed to do his job, deliberately neglected to do his job. Even in that case, is that, is there an, is there enough, are there enough grounds here to hold the agent responsible for the loss of the customer? Says a different Malkiel, No. Why? His initial argument is no. He says, because if you think about it, the agent didn't cause any loss to the customer. His house was going to burn down regardless. It's not like he uh, failed to install an alarm system, failed to call the fire department. There's nothing he could have done, that, nothing he could have or should have done that would have saved the customer's house from being burned down. The only thing he could have done is to secure a compensation for him, to get the insurance company to pay for the house. He says, so therefore, what did I do? I didn't cause you any, I, the insurance agent, I didn't cause you any loss. I didn't cause you to lose anything. I caused you to fail to gain. I caused you to, even though you're, from, from your balance sheet, you're looking at it like you caused me to lose. But from a halachic perspective, that's not actually what happened. The loss is given. The loss is fixed. Your house is going to burn down. The only thing I could have done, in hindsight, we see the house was going to burn down. The only thing I could have done was not to save the house, but was to secure a compensation for you. So he says that in halacha would be classified as mevatal kiso shel chavero. The halacha is, halacha distinguishes between causing a loss and between opportunity cost, between, between preventing you from realizing an opportunity to profit. So if I cause you a loss, that's mazik. That's called I injured you, I was a shomer who caused you a loss, I'm a mazik who caused you a loss, I damaged you directly. The, all the laws of nizikin, of damages in halacha, are all where you cause loss. Where all you do is you cause opportunity cost, you fail to, you, 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 you cause me to fail to be, to be unable to profit, that's called mavatal kiso, that's not typically actionable. Mavatal kiso, literally it means, kiso is a wallet, meaning my, my investments, my bank account. Mavatal is you, you block it or you, uh, you thwart it, you stop me from using my money to make more money. You didn't cause me to lose any money, all my money is still there. But it's like you tied up my wallet for a day, you sealed it up, so I couldn't uh, do business on that day. So even though I lost money in the sense of I lost opportunity cost, I did not lose something out of pocket, so you're not chayef. This is even worse than Mavatal Kiso, he said. This is even less li- liable than Mavatal Kiso because Mavatal Kiso, I handled your wallet. I took something of yours, I tied it up, I did something, he says, here... I, your house is your house. I didn't touch your house. I touched your premium, but the premium itself is not worth all that much. I, all I did was I, I caused you to, to fail to be able to take advantage of an opportunity to get money from an insurance company. That's not mazik, he says, and therefore you will not be chayef. Mavatal kiso. Again, this is a chidrash that he calls him mavatal kiso. Usually mavatal kiso means you fail to profit. Here, you know, maybe you don't look at this as profit. We might have thought that's 
indemnifying me for a loss is, 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 more, is not exactly the same thing as profit. He says, no, from a, from, from a halachic perspective, the house being burned down is a given. It's a fixed, uh, it's a fixed thing. And, uh, and, and we look at the chance to recoup the cost from the insurance company as profit, as a, a chance to get money instead. And that's Mavachal Kiso, he says, and you can't be high for that, as a mazik. So his first argument is that if we try to apply the category of mazik, even if we assume he'd be amazed, worst case scenario, the agent deliberately, maliciously even, tried to uh, injure the, the interests of the customer, it doesn't matter because he is not a mazik. He didn't cause him to lose anything. He simply caused him to fail to be able to take, opportun- to take the opportunity to gain money. That is not mazik. However, he says, let's try another, let's try another approach. Let's see if we can hold him liable as a shomer. A shomer is a custodian, a bailey, a shomer, to those who learn Gemara. So a, uh, a shomer is someone who accepts guardianship, who accepts custodianship for someone else's property, and he's liable for anything that goes wrong to the property while he's responsible for it. So he says, so, so, the, so maybe a shomer has heightened liability. A shomer is not bound by the narrow rules of mazik. A mazik is not chaya for grama, for indirect damage. A mazik is not chaya for mabatal kiso. The different Mokiel argues that a shomer is chaya for that. A shomer is chaya for grama, certainly. Post can say, every shomer, he simply fails to watch the animal. He didn't, he didn't damage the animal himself. Someone else damaged the animal. A wolf came and, uh, came and ate it. Uh, a thief came and stole it. I didn't do that. Nevertheless, you're chayev. There is no such concept of grama for a shomer. Every shomer is grama. You fail to do your job and you're chayev. Says a different Malkiel, that could apply to Mavatal Kiso as well. So, so we can say that we can say that Mavatal Kiso, a Shomer would be Chayev as well for Mavatal Kiso. And therefore, if we apply the category of Shomer, if we have, if you are my fiduciary to, uh, to look after my interest and you fail to fulfill your fiduciary duty, maybe we can apply the category of Shomer, which is not limited by rules such as Grama and Mavatal Kiso. A Shomer would be Chayev. Now, he admits it's not so pashut. He says, We can debate this. And the truth is, we can certainly debate this, because it's one thing to say, if I have your cow or your sheep, I'm a shomer on the sheep, and I have to make sure that the sheep is safe. I have to make sure that the, that the cow is safe. But if I, what am I a shomer on here? The premium? The premium is not worth all that much. The premium, I'll, I'll give you the premium back. The premium is safe and sound in an envelope in my desk. What, what do you want to make me a shomer on? Your house? I mean, I never accepted shmir on your house. On the, on the payout? I never saw the payout. What are you a shomer on exactly? So it's, it's a highly debatable idea that, that, a, that a professional like this has any liability of shmira. Shmira on what? Shmira on, yeah, if I give you an asset, if I give you a piece of property, I give you my watch to fix. Yes, you're a shomer on the watch. If I, if I ask you to uh, fix my car, you're a shomer on my car. But here, I didn't give you anything. Aside from the premium, which you're returning intact. So what are you a shomer on exactly? All right, so, so th- there are other Akhranim who, sim- who, who, do, who do suggest this as well, that the law of Shmira is not limited to tangible objects. You can have a general intangible notion of Shmira with regard to the interests of, the, of, the, of your client, even if there's no specific tangible asset that you're a Shomer on. It's a great Chiddush, but some Akhranim hold to this. Different Malkiel maybe suggests that this is debatable. He, he kind of acknowledges that this is a non-trivial assertion that, 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 there's, an, that there's a concept of uh, that there's a concept of Shmira here. But he says, okay, so we can debate this, whether the law of Shmira applies here. However, he says, I have another problem with applying Shmira. He says, it's one thing, someone who's your fiduciary, who you pay, who's supposed to be working on your behalf, yes, he's a fiduciary, he's a shomer, and he has a heightened degree of liability beyond Mazik to you. However, he says... However, he says, who's paying this agent? Who's he an agent of? He's not your agent. He's not a buyer's agent to go find you insurance. He's an insurance agent who, who are typically agents of the company. Who pays them? The company pays them. You don't pay the insurance agent typically. The company pays the insurance, whether it's commission or salary, whatever it is, he says. Who's paying him? The company's paying him. So he says that, therefore, he's not your shomer. He's a shomer of the company. So once again, he has no shomer liability to you. He has... You, you want to call him a mazik to you? That was his first point. You're not a mazik because there's no, there's no loss. There's just money asarevach, just a loss of opportunity. You want to call him a shomer? He's not your shomer. He's a company shomer. He didn't cause them any loss. He caused you a loss. So again, neither the concept of mazik 
nor the concept of Shomer seems to apply it. That's phase two of his argument. So at this point, we've, we come up short if we try to apply the category of Mazik. We come up short if we try to apply the category of Shomer. Dibber Malkiel now has a third category, a third category of liability, which he considers. That is, besides Mazik, besides Shomer, we have a new idea. Maybe we can hold the, we can hold the agent liable because of a contractual obligation to you as a sort of guarantor, as a sort of arif. What's the basis for that? Where do we find that in halacha? So the, the Dibber Malkiel brings a, a celebrated Gemara in Bav Metziah, I discussed this in my share on Arev, on parash, for, for Parashas, uh, parashas Miketz. But the, but the, the Gemara in Bamantia talks about a, a partnership, two business people, that one of them sent the other, the, the investor partner gave money to the, the agent, the managing partner, so to speak. He told him, go buy wine at a certain place, a place called Zulshafat. Go buy wine over there. It's available at, a, at an attractive price bring the wine back, you'll sell it uh, locally, arbitrage, you'll, you'll sell the wine at a higher price, we'll make money. So he didn't do it. The Gemara talks about whether the agent is liable or not. So the Gemara has some complicated uh, considerations, whether he would or would not be liable, but the Gemara does entertain, at least under certain circumstances, that the agent would be liable. So why? He didn't cause it, the, the agent didn't do it. If the agent failed to do the job, he simply went on vacation and said he took he took $100,000 from, from his principal. He was supposed to buy the wine, which would have yielded them a 50% profit. And instead, he just put the money in his pocket, went on vacation, came back two weeks later and said, here's your money back. Sorry, I, I changed my mind. I went on vacation instead. I didn't lose your money. Here's all your money. Here's an envelope with all the money intact. Unfortunately, the window to buy the wine at the cheap price has closed. And now this wonderful business opportunity has been forfeited and they can't make the money. Yes, Simcha. He agreed to buy the wine, yes. He agreed to buy the wine, and he went back on his word and didn't do it. So the Gemara says that in certain cases and under certain circumstances, he would be chayev. Why? It's mevat kiso. He didn't cause him a loss. He simply caused him a failure to, uh, to, to like in our case, he simply caused him a, fail, a failure to realize profit. He didn't cause him a loss in the halachic sense. So mazik, it's not a mazik exactly. So he says... Uh, so he says, he, he, he said, he, again, he, he doesn't mention specifically Mavat Kiso, but he says, you have this Gemara. And he says that, you know, he, 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 does, he does say it's Mavat Kiso. Nevertheless, the Gemara has, uh, the Gemara says, but there are, but some posts can say that's only because the, 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 the possibility of doing it was uncertain. It's not clear he could have bought the wine. If it would have been a sure thing, if it would have been, it would, have been a no, it would have been a foolproof plan that there was, if there was nothing that would have hindered the, the execution of this plan, then uh, he would be chayev, even though it's mevatel kiso. We showed him talk about this Gemara, we showed him talk about this Gemara, so there are posts who say that you'd be chayev in this case. So you see that, uh, and the, the Ritva explains, that the chayev is because of Arev. When, when a guarantor signs on a loan, a co-signer signs on a loan, what's he saying? He's telling the, the lender... Don't worry about making this loan. Don't worry about releasing the money to the borrower. I'll guarantee it. I'll guarantee. I'll make sure that you come to that, that you remain whole. And if he doesn't pay, I'll pay. That that's the halacha of Arev. We learn it from one of the sources the Gemara brings is from the story of uh, Yaakov and Yehuda and Benyamin and Ochi Arvenu, the Arav Asanar. So that's the idea of Arev, and the Ritva expands this very dramatically, even in a case where you don't accept explicit Arvus. You just, even in ordinary business transactions where, where partners make a deal, an agent and a principal, two partners, they make a deal, one partner relies on the other partner. This is what we call in law detrimental reliance. There are reliance damages, promissory estoppel, different types of doctrines by which if someone relies on somebody else and the, he has detrimental reliance and he made it clear he was relying on him and the other party failed to do it and failed to do what he promised to do, then he's chayev, and according to the Ritva, this is the halachic doctrine in play in this Gemara of Metziah, not mazik, not shomer, but arvus, reliance damages, just like the, the lender relies on the arev to make the loan, and that itself causes the arev to be liable. So to here, the Ritva says, 
the investor, when he tied up his money, he gave it to the agent instead of sending somebody else, instead of going himself to do the deal. He relied, he had detrimental reliance upon the agent, that the agent was supposed to actually do what he said he would do. And he didn't do it, and he caused, so this is a new doctrine, not Mazik, not Shomer, a doctrine of Arvus, that you, that, and the Ritva says, even when it's not explicit, even if you didn't explicitly say, if I don't do it, I'll be chayev, doesn't matter. The mere fact that you said you would do it, and it was clear that he was relying on you, and he had detrimental reliance on you, you're chayev. And that's, a ver- that's an extension of Arvus. So a number of Rishonim and Achronim go with this approach, in particular, the Nesiva Samishpat and the Chasim Sofer go with this approach that Halacha recognizes the notion of, of reliance damages, and therefore the Divan Kiel says, maybe that's, that applies to us too. The customer relies on the agent to do his job and to obtain the policy for him, and he certainly had detrimental reliance. He could have gotten the policy some other way, and therefore, therefore, he bichayev, even though he's not a mazik because it's only Mavachal Kiso, and even though there's no Din Shomer because he's actually an agent of the company, not an agent of you, nevertheless, the fact is you had a deal with him, you, you had a transaction with him in which you exhibited, you, in, which you, in which you exhibited reliance upon him, you had detrimental reliance, you suffered a loss because of his failure to act correctly, and therefore maybe you're chayev based on this doctrine of the Ritva, based on this Gemara, based on the Ritva's understanding of this Gemara, based on the Nesivas and the Chesem Sofer, the way they all understand this Gemara. He says a different Malkiel, not good enough, still the halacha is that you would be putter. Why? We don't pass it like the Ritva, he says. Although the Nesivas is very enthusiastic that the Ritva's approach is correct, and the Chesem Sofer claims that all Rishonim agree to the Ritva, that, he says, is not lahalacha. Most Rishonim learn the Gemara differently. Most Rishonim understand that when the Gemara says, many other Acharnam point this out as well, when the, when the Gemara says, Yerchayev, the Shliach is Chayev for not doing the deal, that's because he accepted explicitly li- explicit liability. He said, I agree to do this, and if I don't do it, I'll be Chayev. He accepted, he, he explicitly and overtly accepted liability. But there's no such thing as implicit uh, liability for reliance. That's not how they learned the Gemara. Very, very few Rishonim explicitly accept this doctrine, he says, aside from the Ritva, very few agree with this. Says a different Malkiel, even though the Nesivas and the Chasim Sofer are great poskim, and I'm reluctant to just disagree with them, he says. However, it's not the Pashtas of the Gemara, it's not the Pashtas of the Rishonim, the Sharmishpat already challenged this idea, he says. So this idea, as interesting and as powerful as it is, the Halacha has a sweeping recognition of detrimental reliance and reliance damages, like various other later acronym that the Divan Malkiel says, this is a novel doctrine. It is, not, uh, it is not universally accepted. And therefore, again, to hold the agent liable based on this uh, intriguing and interesting but not uh, entirely solidly founded doctrine of reliance damages is, uh, is, is, a, is a bridge too far, he says. And once again, this third doctrine as well, he says would not apply, we would not be able to hold the agent liable under the theory of reliance. Now he says, the main reason he says we don't accept this notion of reliance damages, he says, is he, he understands the main reason is because the, the damage was not, uh, because the opportunity was not unequivocally demonstrated to have been a slam dunk. Who knows? Who knows if it would have worked? Maybe, maybe even had he bought the wine, the wine would have, uh, would have been stolen or burned. We don't, business, that, that's why you make money on business, because there's risk. If there'd be no risk, everybody would do it, and there would be no, uh, there would be, the, the, what, what, what you make money for is for assuming some level of risk, he assumes. I mean, he doesn't get into that economic argument, but he says, in the case of the wine, it wasn't a sure thing, there was some level of risk, and therefore, that's why he says there was, uh, that's why we disagree, and we don't accept the notion of reliance damages. He says, in a case where it is a sure thing, he says, then, then he says, maybe everyone accepts this notion of reliance damages, he says. However, he says, we, we can consider, when we say sure thing, do we mean in hindsight or do we mean at the time? In our case of insurance, he says. In hindsight, yes, it was a sure thing. Had you bought this insurance, you would have made, you would have made a lot of money. You would have been paid for your house. You didn't buy the insurance, you lost all that money. So in hindsight, given how things played out, it's clear that, that had you done that, you would have won. However, he says, at the time, when you bought the insurance, it wasn't clear the house was going to burn down. There's no reason to believe the house was going to burn down. That's, that's not necessarily clear at the time that purchasing the policy is going to, is going to be worth uh, a great deal of money, he says. So he goes back and forth on this question. 
He is inclined to say that, 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 that hindsight is enough. If we can turn around in hindsight and say, had you done what you were supposed to do, had you done what he relied on you to do, he would have uh, gained money or avoided losing money, you're going to be high if he says. So once again, he, said, he, he gives an example. He says, if that was exactly what your job was, even if at the time it wasn't clear your job would be necessary, if in hindsight it turns out it was necessary, you'd be high. He gives an example. If I, if I tell you, you know, I, think my, I, I think some things are about to fall, please go bring some cushions. To, I'll pay you to go bring some pillows to put under, my, uh, under where they're about to fall. You don't do that, and they fall and they break. You're high if he says, I relied on you to take care of the pillows. To, you can think of more practical examples, I guess, you know, that, that, that I want you to do something to uh, install a sprinkler system because it might, a fire might come, and you don't do it, even though there was no, it was by no means a sure thing that the fire would break out originally, but that's exactly what I told you to do. It's exactly what I paid you for. Why do I want a sprinkler system? Not so we can run in and out on hot days. I want a sprinkler system so in case there's a fire, the, the, the water will put out the fire. If you don't do it, he says, and in hindsight it turns out had you installed the system, it would have worked. Assuming the sprinkler system is that reliable that it would have worked, he says, you would be chayev. So, never, so he says that. So at this point, we've rehabilitated the notion of reliance damages. If I explicitly tell you to do something for this exact purpose, and in hindsight, had you done your job, I would have a lot more money. So then you'd be chayev. Once again, he says, however, in this case, again, it doesn't work, he says, because going back to his first argument, he's not your agent, he's the agent of the, of the company, that uh, since he's not your agent at all, he says, it's different from the, from the Gemara, it's different from these cases of reliance damages where he's your agent and he has some kind of fiduciary duty to you. In this case, he's the company's agent, he says. Again, it's a chedesh. One might have argued that reliance damages apply even when someone's not your fiduciary, but he says no. He seems to want to argue that the, the halachic notion of reliance damages, are, even when it's a sure thing, are limited to someone who's your fiduciary, who's working for you, and therefore, once again, he says, we come up short. We cannot hold the agent liable. We cannot hold the agent liable for what he did. He makes one or two additional arguments. But this is his bottom line. This is where he ends up. He has one, we'll just mention his last argument. His last argument is, since he didn't even pay the premium, he says, you certainly can't hold him liable. Even though he told you it's okay, I'll, I'll register you without the premium. Nevertheless, since you have no real right to have your policy register without the premium, He's doing you a favor and agreeing to, to extend credit to you for the premium. I don't even know if the company allows that or not, but I'll call upon him. You, ha- you have no right to have the policy registered without the premium. He can change his mind any time and say, I changed my mind. I'm not going to write. I'm not going to register you until you pay the entire premium, even though he should tell you if he's changing his mind, he says. Nevertheless, if Malkiel fails, since you anyway are not really entitled to get the premium, to get the policy without the premium, so particularly in this case, where you didn't even pay the premium, he says, even though he was incredibly neglectful in both not registering the policy and not telling you that he wasn't doing it, nevertheless, maybe you had the money at home. You could have come back with the money. Had he told you the, the, that you need the rest of the premium, I would have come by the office tomorrow with the rest of the money. Nevertheless, if Malkiel feels that the fact that you didn't even pay the full premium, that itself, which means you're not really entitled to the policy, that itself is enough of a reason to say the agent is not chayev. So because of all these different reasons, he says... You ultimately are not chayev. As we've seen, all the... Just one second. So, you you introduced, I thought, a new new feature that completely changes the discussion up to that point. Up to that point, uh, we had not heard about the premium not being paid. Because if you haven't paid your premium, you you don't have, so to speak, a stake that you can claim uh, was was not honored. Uh, uh, So, that is a, a crucial point that was not present so yeah, so I, I, I mentioned it very briefly, I think, in the beginning. You're right. We, we, we didn't really discuss, we didn't really dwell on it in any, in any detail until now. But yes, the, this last paragraph, he returns to a point which he, which he uh, looked past throughout the tshuva. He introduces, he, he focuses on one last point, that when the premium was not entirely paid, there is one final svara why the, the agent is not liable. Yes, the implication would be in a normal case where you paid the entire premium and he failed to register it, then he, uh, he, he's not quite sure. He, these arguments go back and forth, and, he, and, and there are several arguments, Mazik and Shomer and Grumma, Mazik and Shomer. And, and, so, Rabbi, so Rabbi, let's pause for a moment, because there, there are two separate arguments. I like the, I like the, uh, the, the uh, um, detrimental reliance argument, um, uh, because I think it, it, it conveys that in business, people rely on things being done. Um, 
cannot rely on people honoring their commitments, especially if you make if you pay your pay your premium, then you really don't then you really go the, the the norms of business, and you don't have really uh, an ability to conduct a, a, a business. So, had he had he paid his premium, I would think that not honoring the insurance policy uh, would be a, would be a real problem, and. Uh, against the norms of business. Okay, right. So, 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 so Max is making the point that the, the doctrine of, of reliance is, is, a very, is a very intuitively appealing one. It makes sense. It, 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 seems to fit, uh, it, it seems to fit nicely with our notions of equity, of fairness, as well as it being an important doctrine to conduct business that, uh, that, that, that when people rely on each other, that that business business will be more effective if, if if people who are being relied upon know that they'll that they're being held responsible for for that reliance, and business may run more effectively if uh, if there are consequences for for uh, for, you know, for, for failing to uh, for, you know, for failing to be reliable. So yeah, so I, I agree I agree that those those are appealing svaras. Nevertheless, uh, the, the the fact that something seems plausible. Is not always enough of a reason. The, the the halacha, even though we try to bring it as much in line as we can with uh, with our intuitive notions of equity and with our and with our basic notions, and, and, and we also want the halacha to be an effective way of running commercial society. At the end of the day, the, it doesn't always work like that. There, there there are entire classes of halacha which are not strictly in accordance with equity. The whole idea of grama, that that the indirect damage, your potter, even if we can prove that it's your fault and that. Uh, Nevertheless, you're potter, even though it's clearly your fault. So the halacha doesn't just because something makes sense doesn't mean you're always higher for it. But yes, it's, it's important. It's important to acknowledge that it's a very logical and sensible svara. But Afal Bikain, it's a, it's a subject of debate in the poskim, and without this last point that, the, that it wasn't the entire premium that had been paid, Rivin Malkiel concedes that, that that there isn't a, a a single argument that's entirely compelling to hold the agent responsible. Is it possible for someone to be an agent of two different parties? Yes. So, 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 so Hadas is is raising the question of whether someone can be a a, a dual agent, like like we have in, in real estate. We have sometimes a buyer's agent, a seller's agent. Sometimes he can be a, both a buyer's and a seller's agent, as long as you disclose properly and so on. And that was actually one of the points in the different Malkiel that I alluded uh, right before the end. In the penultimate paragraph, he says. Previously, he had said that, that since the agent is really an agent of the company, he's not your agent. He proposes very briefly in one line exactly what Hadas was saying. He says, Even though he's an agent of the company, Maybe he's also an agent of the customer as well. Maybe he's an agent of both of them. Even if his, his, his bread is being buttered, he's being paid by the company. But when the customer approaches him and he agrees to, to, to sign the customer up, Maybe he's also acting as an agent of the customer simultaneously. So he, he doesn't get into detail about this argument. He just says that some posts can say such things uh, in, in other contexts. However, he says, he doesn't think this is correct or that he doesn't think it applies in our case. He doesn't explain in much detail the arguments for or against. So yes, it's a, the, he, he does raise your point, although he do, and, and, he, and he does kind of dismiss it. But not in any uh, not in any detail. So uh, further research is required into that point. I don't have uh, sources or much context of, about that off the top of my head. So yes, thank you for bringing it up. A related question, Rabbi. Yes. Just in general laws of Chosim Mishpat, if if a lender sends his shaliach to a borrower to to get payment on the loan, and the borrower hands over the money to the shaliach. Could the borrower still be liable if the shaliach loses the money? I, I, this concept that he, he was the lender shaliach, not the borrowers, does that apply elsewhere in in, in Mishpah? Right. So, so, the, so the question is, if, if if a lender sends an authorized agent to collect a debt, and the borrower pays the money into the in, into the hands of the agent, can the borrower does the borrower retain any liability? That's actually a, an extensively discussed topic in the Gemara and the Poskim. Generally, if all the forms are satisfied, then if he comes with a proper harsha, proper doc- documentation, attesting to his being an authorized agent, and so on, then, then in, if certain conditions are met, then the buyer is absolved from, then the borrower is absolved from all further responsibility. In other cases, even if, even if it's objectively true that the lender sent him, 
but if he doesn't have all the proper all the proper formalities, in some cases the buyer won't be won't be fully uh, won't be fully absolved of all responsibility. But yes, so in, in general, though, if he is the if he is the borrower's agent, if he is the the lender's agent, then then, then the buyer then in principle the borrower will be absolved of responsibility, I believe, for paying him. That, is, there, is there any parallel here? So the, 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 the one difference is, in your case, the, the Dintara, the, 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 the legal question is between the borrower and the lender, the agent, there are Dintara with the agent as well, but in, in your case, the, the, the common question is, the lender says, I never got the money, the, the borrower says, well, I gave it to your agent. So that would, the parallel would be if the customer was arguing with, uh, with the insurance company, the, the customer is saying, I expect you to honor this policy because I... I properly paid. I, I gave the money over to your designated pre, uh, policy agent, and whatever he did is uh, he did or didn't do is your problem. So if he took the the company to a dintera, and and he argued that since I did I did everything I was supposed to do, I want you to honor the policy. That would be in a certain sense analogous to the to that case. Um, in our cases we were our cases we're discussing where the agent himself is liable, and then the question is. If the dintera is between the customer and the agent, the question is, since the agent is not the customer's agent, he doesn't have quite the same sense of responsibility to him. The analogy to your case would be if the, if the, if the agent lost the money that he was given by the borrower en route, and for some reason the creditor is not honoring it, even though al maybe he should, but if the creditor, let's say, is, is refusing, the creditor is not Jewish, let's say, and the creditor is refusing to the bank. The, the, the bank sent a collection, the bank sent a... Uh, Sent a, sent a collections agent after you, you gave him the money, he ran off with it, the bank then says, we never got the money, and you owe it to us, and you say, well, I gave it to your, I gave it to your, to your, uh, you know, to your, your, your leg breaker, and, uh, and they say, well, sorry, we never saw it, and the bank doesn't want to listen to you, could you hold the, the agent liable for losing the money, or mailing it to the wrong address, or whatever it is, right, so this, that, I think, would be uh, kind of analogous to our case, yeah, so th- these are good questions, but Right. It's, it, these are tricky and important concepts, but yes, it's, it's complicated. But uh, this is the different Malkiel's analysis of the of this question. Yes. Yeah, so, Rabbi, listening to this discussion, and, and uh, I don't really have a profound understanding of business law, but the, the points that were made, uh, I think uh, my, my guess is that if you were to go into a, into a, a legal setting, and you were to say, I gave the money to the insurance agent, and that insurance agent uh, did not uh, file it. You would, you probably would um, prevail in a suit. Uh, and if you say that this concept of uh, detrimental reliance is not halachic, then you are inviting people to avoid the bid din because the bid din's practice is in con- it does not follow uh, business law. And then the other issue would go that if you, that's the case, why about following the, 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 uh, the law of the land? If the law of the land says that if you've done your, your diligence, uh, your part, and you are not, um, you, you're not being compensated, then um, you should be able to go to a secular court and get justice, or at least your perception of what justice is. So, so Max is raising a, Max is raising a number of important issues here. Again, it's 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 kind of speculation since we don't know what the law was in Poland a hundred years ago. But the Max Max is raising the question: assuming that the law would be that the agent is liable, the company is liable. Assuming that assuming that the law is uh, that it, assuming the law provides for greater recourse to the customer, either from the company or from the agent, than halacha would. And halacha, halacha would say the agent is off the hook, the company is off the hook, and the law would say that one or both of them are actually liable. So the question is, would halacha recognize that? First question. Second question is, if halacha would not recognize that, then does, doesn't that provide an incentive for people to go to court instead of going to uh, basin? Right. So the, those are both uh, profoundly important questions. The first question is one we've discussed a number of times in the past. When does halacha incorporate secular law into its, uh, into its own system? When does it not? It is a very, very big topic, both in terms of the, the principle of dina melchusadina, that halacha sometimes recognizes 
secular laws being binding upon Jews, controlling and dealings between Jews, as well as due to the power of minhag, that, uh, that, that, that when people operate in a certain commercial culture, they often implicitly accept upon themselves the norms and even the, the law of that culture as, as, that, they, that, they, that, that their transactions should be governed by those laws. And these points are made, are made by the postkim. So, for example, for Moshe Perlmutter, another postkim who lived about a century ago, lesser-known lesser known, postkim, but an interesting thinker, he talks about a case where, I think we discussed this one in the past, where somebody gave some property to a, to a company to process, to, to clean, to fix, to, to, to do something to it, and a worker at the company damaged it. Al-Pi'alacha, your, your recourse is only to the worker. The co- a company, there's no notion of vicarious liability. There's no notion of uh, respondeat superior, where a superior is responsible for the actions of his underlings. Al-Pi'alacha, the person who, who, who committed the, the malfeasance is liable. The company, the company as a whole is not. The business as a whole is not. Obviously, when we go into a dry cleaner and, and, and somebody operating the machine damages our suit, we take for granted the business is going to be responsible. Not, I don't have to go track down the individual garment worker who damaged my suit. So, or you know, one of my sisters once talked about a case where somebody gave his car to a valet parking service and it got damaged or it got a ticket or something. So we take for granted that I'm not going to go after the minimum wage worker who's parking the car. I'm going to, I'm going to go after the, the, the company, the, the company whose name is on the, the ticket, the company whose valet parking service provided by uh, Acme Valet Parking, and not, not, after the, not after the actual worker who does the, the parking. So halacha has no such notion. And Post can discuss whether halacha assumes that in the modern world where the expectation of the customer is that he's going to have recourse against the company, whether that, whether that becomes incorporated into halacha as well. So Moshe Perlmutter suggests that it does. He goes back and forth on this. He says, maybe not. Maybe if you're dealing with Jews, you expect them to follow Din Torah. Or maybe, maybe no, maybe you expect them to follow whatever the modern commercial, uh, commercial framework is. So there are postkim who say this. There are postkim who do say that the halacha becomes that, especially in, in, in cases involving contracts and fiduciary relationships and so on, that these kind of things become automatically governed by the prevailing culture. But it's a, it's a complex and difficult topic. And uh, and it's a, it, it, it is a it, it is a fascinating but somewhat uh, complex and difficult topic. The other, the other, I, I recently published a paper on rent control in halacha, where I discussed the opinions of a century, the twentieth century poskim on whether secular rent control law becomes binding upon Jews, in part under the doctrine of minhag that when that when you rent a house, you're doing so against the backdrop of of rent regulation, and, and both parties implicitly assume that they're going to be governed by rent regulation. Many postkim do accept that, maybe not all, but yeah, so that, that, that's an important topic. The other point you mentioned, if halacha, for whatever reason, is not going to accept secular law and is going to, uh, is going to afford the plaintiff fewer rights and less recourse than he would have under secular law, does that not create an incentive for the plaintiff to go to court instead of going to Basin as he should? Also an important point, and there are indeed major postkim of the contemporary era who, because of that argument, have, have advocated, have urged that when you enter into a contract, they have recommended that you include clauses that will explicitly adopt certain aspects of secular law precisely because of this in order to minimize the incentive of, of the parties going to secular court. So, for example, Rav Zalman Nechemia Goldberg is probably the most prominent most prominent advocate of this, he says that, that in a, that's one reason he says to write a halachic will. To, a person should give his daughters uh, a substantial share of his estate, because otherwise, even though Al-Pi Halacha of Zalman Nechemia says the halacha is clear, as we've discussed before, the halacha does not follow secular inheritance law. Halacha says that if a person dies in testate, the, almost all posts can agree that we follow Din Torah, and we, we, we don't, uh, we don't give the girls anything when there are boys, and Bnei Slavchan only got because there were no boys. We don't give the girls if there are any boys around. But the girls, he says, then have a tremendous uh, temptation to go to court to, to, to get some of the estate. Court will give them. So Rav Zalman Nechemia says it, it, that, that's a tremendous reason to write a will, to give the girls something, precisely in order to, to, uh, to forestall the possibility that they're going to go to court. 
Similarly, Rav Zalman is, encourages the writing of a prenup, a prenup with, in, in which a woman upon divorce will get a larger share of the assets than which she would get under Dintara, because under Dintara she gets relatively little. She gets her ksuva. The, the husband can be uh, Jeff Bezos. He can, he can be worth billions, hundreds of billions. And he divorces his wife, and she gets nothing if there's no settlement. She gets ksuva, which is not very much. So... In such a case, a, a Jewish woman would have a, would have a terrible temptation to go to court because the court would give her a whole lot more than she would get under uh, under Dintar. So Rav Zalman Nehemiah therefore says that, that it, it's reasonable, it, it, he encourages writing a prenup, which says that in the case of divorce, the, the woman will be entitled to a larger share of assets than which she would, than she would be entitled to according to Dintar. I suppose that the temptation for the woman to go to court could also be forestalled by writing... The kind, of, the kind of prenup that some stingy rich men write, in which they say a prenup that explicitly says that in the case of divorce, she gets nothing, but uh, if that works in court. But anyway, the, the point is, yes, Postkin do acknowledge that in cases where there is a, where there is a severe disparity between the rights of a, of a party under Dintura and their rights under secular law, then yes, there is, they, they acknowledge that there is a terrible temptation to go to court, and some of them even say that we should accept that and therefore... Under the terms of our contract, we should explicitly write something in that will, that will give the other party something closer to what he would get in court. However, in the absence of such a clause, where the contract didn't say anything about uh, awarding the party such a thing, then we're back to the first question. Does halacha typically, does halacha typically, grant, the, does halacha typically grant the party uh, something he'd be entitled to under secular law? The answer is that although, particularly in contract cases, there, is, uh, there are arguments to say that. We do say that in some cases the rules are complicated and, uh, again, not, not, not going to go further along that, line, uh, along that line of thinking right now. I just want to discuss very briefly the other tshuva I said I would talk about, or where it's later, already, but I just want to discuss very briefly the tshuva of the Chavetzel Sasharan. His case was as follows. His case was maybe a little simpler, a little more like classic malpractice. His case was a customer wanted to buy a Sefer Torah, and he asked, before he bought it, he got it appraised. He asked an expert sofer, tell me, is this Sefer Torah, a used Sefer Torah, is this Sefer Torah in good condition? The sofer said, yeah, it's a, it's a, you know, it needs a little work, but it, uh, the work is relatively cheap. It, it'll cost only 60 mark, whatever, whatever mark we're talking about was. It's, uh, the fix is relatively affordable, and you can, you can buy the Sefer Torah. It's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a legitimate deal. He bought it. It turned out 